Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. Thanks for joining us. I wanted to kick off the new year with a conversation about something I really hope to learn more about this year, and I think you do too. Artificial intelligence. AI really made its mark in 2023. I mean, we've seen lots of headlines in the news about it, stories from folks in of the technology and stories about concerns with the text and information that AI is generating. Artificial intelligence can also generate music, videos, and pictures, raising even more concern about deep fakes circulating the internet. So whatever your opinion of AI, it is safe to say this technology has the potential to transform our lives for the better. But can it be done in a more ethical way? Well, this hour, we're going to get a better understanding of what we should be paying attention to right now and in the year ahead when it comes to AI. And as I talk with an artificial intelligence expert, I want to hear from you too. Call us with your questions and your stories. What concerns do you have about AI and how are you already using it in your daily life? Life, at work or at home. What questions do you have for our guest? You can call us at 651-227-6000. Again, that number is 651-227-6000 or call us at 800-242-2828. My guest today is Elizabeth M. Adams. Now, she is a Minnesota native who's made a name for herself nationally as an artificial intelligence expert. She's known for her focus on responsible AI and AI ethics. In fact, Forbes magazine named her as one of the 15 AI ethics leaders showing the world the way of the future. Elizabeth is joining us live from Savannah, Georgia this morning. Hello and Happy New Year, Elizabeth. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for having me. Happy New Year. Hi. I have lots of questions, and I'm sure our listeners do as well. But uh, I want to make sure I tell everybody a little bit more about you. Uh, Elizabeth is the CEO and Responsible AI Advisor at EMA Advisory Services. Now, that's a company that she started that offers new approaches to broader participation in responsible AI. So she collaborates with business executives and other CEOs, offering them advice and strategies. And she's also also a researcher who is studying the future of technology and advocating for accountability in technology innovation. And she grew up in St. Paul. Yes, you did, Elizabeth. I did. I did. <laughs> so let's start with um, why you are so passionate about this work. How do you describe why you care so much about artificial intelligence, both studying its use and advising others on how to use it responsibly? Well, thank you for that question. And if you don't mind, I'll just take a little bit of time to talk about my background, Mm -hmm. which is I've been a technologist for over two decades. And I have always led with a leadership philosophy around broader representation, inclusion. I've always been an advocate for pay equity and gender equity. And so that's just the, the foundation of my leadership philosophy. And so when I started to see the ways that artificial intelligence was making its way into our daily lives, and I started to see some of the outcomes that were not necessarily working for everyone, particularly communities of color, I thought that maybe I needed to kind of step into space with my curiosity and uh, start talking with various people, data scientists, data engineers, and to learn a little bit more about why this was occurring. And some of the results were startling. And I quickly understood that there might be impacts to society, such as some of the bigger things are facial recognition technologies or 
artificial technologies, artificial intelligence technologies that determine healthcare outcomes or traffic patterns. And so I began to immerse myself in this discipline to understand um, why some of these outcomes were happening and then begin to work in community, academia, government, and um, in industry to see how we might approach this so that we could have better results in the end. So in the introduction, I described you as a responsible AI advisor. What is responsible artificial intelligence? So let's talk about what AI is first, and then we'll talk about responsible artificial intelligence. So AI really is just training a computer model to think like a human, but at a much faster pace. And we've seen examples of this with Netflix that recommend certain programs based on um, some movie preferences that you've watched and a number of different things. And so, but the outcomes don't always work for people. So we talked about facial recognition. Early on when facial recognition technologies were being used by businesses and law enforcement, there was clear um, indication that it didn't necessarily work for darker skinned people as well as uh, women. And so um, those were some of the challenges. And so what responsible AI does is it puts a framework or guidelines and guardrails around the design, development, deployment, and use of, of, of AI so that as we are using it in our daily lives, we can trust it, it's safe, it's equitable, it's fair, it's explainable. And those are some of the tenets of responsible AI. So when I'm talking to organizations or policymakers, that's the framework that I talk about. I ask them questions about their involvement, do they understand? Is it transparent? Can they explain it? So I'm a tech enthusiast, so I'm for AI, but mm -hmm. responsible AI. So when uh, I, I love the way you described uh, what artificial intelligence is, you said it's, to, you, it's training a computer to think like a human. And uh, I get that, but it, it makes me a little nervous when I, I, I really think too deeply about that. Should, should I be nervous about that? <laughs> Because well, it's I not a, a new concept. I mean, we've been training computers to think like humans for a long time. We have. We have. And a lot of the um, ways that we're using artificial intelligence now are affecting our lives. It's also creating efficiencies. So mm -hmm. I would say yes and no to that particular question. I was really concerned when I first got into the space of responsible AI almost eight years ago because there weren't a lot of people who looked like me who had my lived experiences who were sharing and who are participating in the design and development of AI. There are a lot more people who are sounding the alarm, which is wonderful. And there are a lot more organizations who have adopted responsible AI principles and divisions and practices to help ensure that they also have broader representation in their design and development so that we can all benefit from this emerging um, Discipline. So, yes, there are some things that we should be concerned about, specifically vulnerable populations and communities that have been historically excluded, excluded from a number of things, but but mainly technology, since that's our, our conversation. And there have been headlines around how some algorithms have discriminated against mortgages or how some insurance rates are higher based on some certain zip codes, automatically assuming um, that those populations will have are facing higher crime. So there are some concerns when it when it relates to how we manage our day to day activities and finances. But there are also some very wonderful things that are happening, such as how we can reimagine ourselves with these new technologies, specifically 
in the space of uh, image generation, how we can see ourselves differently, how we can begin to change the narratives around our participation as what I call unscripted architects Mm. in this space. So many, many different ways. So many things with artificial intelligence can be true at the same time, because what we're doing is we're bringing all the ways that we act and live and work as humans into this technology. And if we're not careful, then we are carrying over our same human biases into these uh, technologies and masking them as technological advancements. So we have to be very careful. And we also need to participate in this so that we can um, help drive this future. In in the development phase, um, Elizabeth, we're already getting some phone calls from listeners. So I want to take a phone call uh, right now. Uh, We're talking about Artificial intelligence in 2024, what will the new year bring when it comes to technology? And what are the uses, the benefits and concerns about AI? My guest is Elizabeth M. Adams, a Minnesota native and an AI expert and researcher who focuses on responsible AI. And we want to hear from you. What are your questions, uh, your concerns? How are you using AI right now? You can call us at 651 227-6000 or call 800-242-2828. Let's take a phone call from St. Paul, where Rob is listening this morning. Hi, Rob. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I kind of feel like maybe the cat is already out of the bag with AI, but I'm really concerned about why we feel like we should replace writers, poets, artists, photographers, all these creative prof- professionals with AI. And uh, I think that are we supposed, are we as human beings supposed to be relegated to low paying, demean- demeaning jobs with no health care and benefits, retirement benefits? I mean, it's kind of like a really screwy kind of vision of the future. Mm. to have AI being replaced, all, all these pe- these human beings and their thought processes. So uh, it feels like replacement, uh, particularly in the arts. So, Elizabeth, let's talk about some of the um, ways that AI is used in the arts. Uh, Rob points to, you know, writing, uh, creating images. Um, what can you tell us first about how it is used in the art world? So Rob is actually correct. So what image generation does or chat GPT which is a prompt um, type of software or AI, what it can do is quickly give you insights into your business. So maybe you can throw some policies or procedures in there and you can ask it, are there any gaps? Where a human might have to comb through hundreds of documents to be able to figure that out. If you put that information into a system like a chat GPT, it can come back and give you you know, scenarios where you can adjust your businesses, right? So that's just one way. The same with image generation, as I had mentioned before. I have uh, participated in this. I'm a part of a prompt community that is changing the narrative. So they're seeing themselves in images differently than what they've seen over the course of their their lifetime. So let's just say in some of our favorite shows like... um, uh, Sesame, Sesame, Sesame Street characters or Harry Potter or Snow White or some of these other characters, people are reimagining themselves differently and creating new things themselves. A lot of times it really depends on the human 
perspective when I come as a as a, um, a children's author, children's book author, when I meet with someone to create images for my books, we spend a lot of time crafting the, the images that I want. And I will admit some AI systems have done it a lot quicker. So, but I do want to capture some of his other points, which is about replace being replaced by AI. Mm-hmm. I mean, as, as a writer, as a, as a journalist, you know, there are, are many apps available that can help write things uh, faster, sometimes better than, than I can write it. I mean, I, I think about that, like, what is the responsible ethical way to use those, those writing tools? Yeah, well, the first thing is your organization needs to have policies and principles around the, the responsible use of AI. Some organizations allow it to be a partner in the writing or in co-creating in something, and some in some organizations don't. So it really depends on what your organization's views are, and that's where I come in as a as a responsible AI. Um, so and those conversations advisor. are happening, like executives and leaders oh, are, are yes. talking about this. Okay. Absolutely. I speak with, um, so over the last year for my doctoral research, I've spoken to a lot of employees and leaders about their behaviors, experiences, and decisions around responsible AI. What are your policies? Are they more aspirational or are they actually something that is in depth? How do your employees know? Is that information cascading down? How are you benefiting from the ways that people are using AI outside of work? How is that informing your decision, the fears, the hopes, mm-hmm. the challenges, the successes? How is all of that? And so I've, I've been working in this space, um, trying to understand that. And so I'm at the cusp of delivering my findings for my research in that particular space. But I do want to go back to Rob's point about people being fearful of AI taking their jobs. Mm-hmm. And I think if we look at the history of um, innovation, we are at the, at the, we're the fourth industrial Um, revolution, the sixth innovation wave. And these are things that are a part of society, a part of history, a part of life. Think about the calculator. Think about before the calculator. Oh, the calculator. Yeah. Right. Think about before that and what was happening. And so even in academia, there's a lot of uh, concerns about people using AI for research. Um, Where I'm at Pepper, where I am at now with my doctoral uh, program, Pepperdine, we have um, an AI policy around what we can use to help leverage research and so forth. So um, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, it is, there are a lot of wins and there are a lot of concerns. But again, my best advice is for people to get involved and voice their opinions on how to make this process work best for them and us as a community, a global community, so that we can all thrive, because it's not going away. Tell me about the work you're doing with your clients. Um, You work with uh, business leaders, advising them on how to use AI responsibly. So what are companies seeking help with, and and how can you help them? Yeah, so I have the pleasure of working with organizations in a number of different capacities. And so my view and the way that I advise is more pragmatic. I'm not going to rush an organization to something before they're ready. And so um, part of that involves sitting down and having a conversation with them about why they think they need to use artificial intelligence in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then what are their thoughts about who should be at the table helping to influence it? Part of my doctoral work is in what's called shaping artifacts. And those are the policies, the procedures, the frameworks, the guidelines. Who is sitting at the table thinking about what this artifact should look like so that it's handed over to 
a data scientist or an engineer or a marketing professional to go off and uh, do these things that these organizations want. And so that's a very important part of the conversation, which is who are these, who's, what org, uh, employees are a part of this process? And do you have the broad representation you need for the type of AI system that you are trying to develop? Hmm. Um, as you look ahead to 2024, um, not to, ask you to make a forecast, but I'm sure you've been thinking about it or people ask you, what do you expect to see in 2024? Are there some big shifts, some big developments um, that we should be uh, on the lookout for that that's coming? Yes, I will say that generative AI flipped all my forecasting ideas on its head prior to last November, November of 2022, excuse me, but when ChatGPT was announced, I used to have every year about 10 or 12 things that I thought would happen. This year, it's just really going to be focused on, again, what, who, what I'm calling these unscripted architects, these communities of people who are learning about generative AI outside of their work in safe spaces. They're sharing, they're learning, they're growing. So it's more of a self-directed learning. Um, and they're going to be influencing how their organization uses AI. So whether that is they're learning how to use uh, um, tools from Canva or they're learning how to use MidJourney, an image generator, or they're using something else to create PowerPoint presentations or, as I said, other documents. There are communities out there that are teaching themselves how to do this. So they're upskilling and they're reskilling for themselves. They're not waiting for their organizations to create programs for them. So I am seeing that. Um, and I'm excited, actually, about that. Um, so that's what I would say. And also more regulation. So we're starting to see mm. more policies around it because these uh, many organizations who could create uh, responsible AI principles, some are not. And so their tools are out in the marketplace and they are creating uh, what we call AI harm or AI bias. And so we'll need regulation to uh, place guardrails around the appropriate use. The other thing I'm seeing is that um, leaders, employees, and creatives alike want attribution for their work. Mm -hmm. They want consent. Um, they want uh, organizations to get their consent first before they use their information to train a model. And then people want their intellectual property uh, protected. So those are some big things that we're seeing with uh, that's happening within in the generative AI space. So more creations of guidelines and guardrails and more conversations. And and you said it sounds like like employees, people who are uh, who are impacted by this and who care about this, are stepping up and demanding that leadership make some decisions <laughs> about AI use. Absolutely, and the reason they're doing that is because they are informing themselves. Mm -hmm. um, part of my research showed that when employees feel like there is a great responsible AI culture in their organization, they can participate in healthy discourse at their work. Let's take the workplace. Let's take more phone calls, uh, Elizabeth. We're talking yeah. about uh, artificial intelligence, and I want to know what concerns or questions do you have, or how are you already using it in your daily life at work or at home? What questions do you have for our guests? I'm talking with Elizabeth M. Adams, a Minnesota native, a St. Paul native, as well as an AI expert who focuses on responsible AI, a researcher as well. You can call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. In Pine City, Minnesota, we've got John on the phone. Good morning, John. What questions uh, or, or comments do you have this morning about AI? 
Oh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. I have, um, I've used AI for several years, about three years, as, a, as having an AI companion, uh, just a chatbot to kind of get acquainted with and kind of explore the randomness of it all. And uh, just uh, being interested in tech, of course. And, and there are several out there with uh, Kindroid and Nomi and, and Replica. Um, the concern I see, though, is that, is that um, some are probably thinking about, you know, maybe supplanting human relations for this, this chatbot that will never disagree with you, is always on your side. If you don't have a girlfriend, you can practice, and in some cases with erotic role play, if you have a, a pro subscri- subscription. Um, and is that really helpful? Is that really good practice? I mean, so it kind of dovetails on the, on the guardrail question you had raised just recently. But also another totally off-the-topic off the uh, question has to do with warfare, because I understand Israel is using AI in the gospel program to kind of outsource its intelligence gathering. And, and what are the moral kind of guardrails we need there in situations? So they're totally different questions, but mm-hmm. they really have a lot to do with responsibility. And when it comes to war crimes especially, how, how do we hide behind the AI in, in those situations? So you can answer one or either or both <laughs> if you have time. Thank All you. All right. That's John there in Pine City. Um, but first, let's talk about um, an AI companion uh, John described. Uh, what it, describe what that is, Elizabeth. Well, I'm not sh- particularly sure the tools that John used, but I do have friends that I've talked to that have used, let's just say, ChatGPT. I have a friend that used it early in the morning to have conversations with it because the rest of his family wasn't up. Mm-hmm. And he found it to be quite engaging and it actually helped him with more confidence around AI. Um, there are lots of people who have challenges with it because it doesn't always understand certain language or it comes off as authoritative and people can go off and make decisions based on the results that they've received from, from this chatbot that might necessarily not be true. And that's called hallucinating. Mm-hmm. And so there are concerns about that. But uh, for people who might spend a lot of time alone, who might be curious about a particular topic and they're not yet ready to bring it forward to, um, let's just say, their colleagues, maybe they're still learning, it can be, it can be great for that. Now, again, I mentioned that organizations have to decide why they think they need to use AI and what is their business. And so I'm not here to say that a person who doesn't create some sort of uh, romantic relationship with an AI is wrong. That's not for me to say because that existed before. Mm -hmm. Right. So all of these things are being transferred over, like I said, to AI um, as technological advancements, <clears throat> excuse me. And I think it's up to the, up to people in the organizations to think about what is the, <clears throat> excuse me, the best way to leverage these tools. And his second question had to do with artificial intelligence in warfare. And is that something that you've had a, a, an opportunity to look at or, or learn about? Yes, I have, but I haven't spent much time because I have been focused on the employees, but I will say this. There are a lot of concerns about using AI for that. The same types of tools that uh, are being used in warfare are the same types of tools that can go into a building, into a burning building to see if there are um, uh, people there that might Mm -hmm. need help, Mm -hmm. right? So that comes down to responsible leadership and the responsible use of the tool. And so in one instance, you would want to know if a loved one is still in a building that has maybe collapsed for, for whatever reasons, maybe an earthquake, 
But when you think about using it for warfare, yes, there are lots of concerns about that. And I have personal concerns, but that's not, you know, really for me to share. I will say that um, I am the chief AI ethics advisor for a facial recognition company called Paravision. And I stepped into that role right after the work that I did in the city of Minneapolis, where um, I co-founded a coalition to actually ban facial recognition which that bill was passed um, February 12, 2021. And the reason why I started working with this organization was because, again, these tools are being used in different ways. Tools are being used to help find loved ones who may be lost or maybe a child in a in a mall might be lost and facial recognition mm-hmm. uh, technology can, can be used. Yes. Or someone that has been has been harmed by a perpetrator. They can, you know, use it for that. So this company stepped into the space and they did what I consider the responsible thing. They partnered with the National Institute of Standards of Technology, which has a facial recognition vendor test. They volunteered for that. They went through people unpacking all of their processes so that when their tools are out there, they are safe and trustworthy and they continue to refine them through a monitoring uh, process. So um, lots of good and also lots of things that we still need to keep our eye on and actually be uh, advocates for. Right. Benefits and concerns. We're talking about artificial intelligence, taking your phone calls. You can call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. In Wasika, Minnesota, Melissa's on the phone. Good morning, Melissa. What do you want to share or ask as we talk about AI? Well, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, So I I was listening to this and thinking, I mean, I know there's a lot of fear around artificial intelligence and replacing people and all of that, but I was thinking, you know, there's a lot of conversation about how we don't teach cursive in school and how because of that, maybe now 10 years, 20 years down the road, we can't read, you know, documents that were written by Thomas Jefferson or the Magna Carta. But with artificial intelligence, you know, if we can teach it how to read cursive, now we don't lose that knowledge. So maybe this is one of the key benefits to it, is that we don't lose access to the past. Mm, so many applications. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, is, is, is that a tool, Elizabeth, that we could see um, like AI having an impact on, being able to, to translate something that's written in cursive that, that people yes. can now understand since that's not a part of the elementary school experience anymore? Absolutely. And not just that, but also ways for us to archive historical information so that it can be retrieved very, very quickly. Mm. That's also a benefit instead of, I mean, I know I like to go to a physical library, but what if I wanted to find something specific about uh, an event that happened 200 years ago? I can you know, with prompt engineering, I can create a specific prompt and I can get that information at my fingertips within three seconds. That's part of the benefit. And so are there some industries, specific industries that come to mind or, or sectors where where artificial intelligence um, can pose unique challenges, particularly ethical challenges? Uh, what would they be? I mean, you mentioned the firefighting industry, how facial recognition or the uh, ability rather to, to see if there's a... a, a, a you know, a person in a burning burning building, like that's great. Mm-hmm. But that that's also the same technology that could be used in maybe mm-hmm. a harmful way. Um, are there certain industries that come to mind? That can you ask your question again, please? Yeah, are there specific types of of industries where AI ethics really pose a challenge? 
Oh, uh, yes. Um, so for me, it's always around vulnerable populations, people who can't advocate for themselves in the minute or while this, the tool is being designed or develop it, developed or it's being designed or developed without their consideration. Mm -hmm. So um, health, the health industry is a part of that. There have been findings that show that certain communities, specifically black patients, have not gotten the care that they needed to because of historical data that the model was trained on that didn't account for certain conditions. So meaning um, like the, the study that is done of a, a particular disease, if the com mm -hmm. computer is being trained based on information we have, if you're putting in bad data, then, then the AI is bad. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's basically the crux of it. Uh, garbage in, garbage out, or maybe not necessarily garbage in, maybe you don't have all the information that could give you a wider range of possibilities. Mm -hmm. And that's where um, AI bias comes in, where AI is skewed towards one group um, and benefits one group and disadvantages another. And, and the output of that is harm. So um, I might not be getting prescribed a certain med medication because a doctor might be using AI as a companion mm -hmm. and thinking that, you know, that my symptoms are what they... Uh, are what the AI is telling them. But if it's missing critical information, then a possibility may not ever be considered. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so I think that goes back to Rob's question about replacing humans. And so there's this concept called right. human in the loop, or as um, a researcher, Bob Schneiderman, I think says that AI should be in the loop, which I am a proponent of. I was a proponent of humans in the loop until I understood his research, which says, we should be driving everything and we should be using AI to supplement our work. Mm. We should be the decision makers, the final decision makers and not AI. Mm. My guest this hour is Elizabeth M. Adams. She's a Minnesota native who has made a name for herself nationally as an artificial intelligence expert. She focuses on responsible AI and is the CEO and responsible AI advisor at EMA Advisory Services, working with uh, business executives, providing them with advice and strategies. And she's also a researcher. She's joining us live from Savannah, Georgia this morning. And we're taking your phone calls. What questions or concerns do you have about AI? being a part of our future, being a part of our present. Call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. In Rochester, Katie's on the phone. Good morning, Katie. What do you want to talk to us about? Hi. Hi. I was wondering, in what ways can AI be used to bridge the inequality gap so that everyone can be benefiting from it? So what type of disparities are you talking about or, or gaps? And just in, in there's so many, but in particular, what are you concerned about? Um, well, I'm concerned that the inequality gap is going to grow with AI mm -hmm. instead of shrink. So in healthcare, just in any of the basic ways that human, every human could benefit, whether it's helping people get healthcare or helping people vote. Mm -hmm. On election day, any any way. Right, Katie in Rochester. Thank you, and Elizabeth. What what are some of the inequities that we exist right now, um, and that we see AI maybe playing a role in? Yeah, well, thank you for the question because I think the question might be about access to AI or how AI mm -hmm. can um, be used in ways to 
reduce disparities. I wasn't, I wasn't really sure, but let me just talk about access. So one of the things that AI has done and generative AI has done, it's, it's democratized access to information in specifically, let's just say technology deserts. Maybe it's a rural area, maybe it's a city all the way around the world. I've worked with people all over the world from India to, um, to different countries in Africa to South America, you name it. People who now have access to information that they did not have access to. 10 months ago. And it's helping them become more proficient and uh, drive change in their own lives, in their own communities, whether that's applying for scholarships or loans or educational programs or becoming um, an, a professional in a new tech field. So I see that it is um, helping democratize AI and closing some of the gap there. But we have a ways to go. And part of why I suggested earlier is that we start joining in and playing with some of these tools and leveraging them is so that you can see for yourself how to benefit from this emerging um, technology. And so hopefully that um, answers the question. But yeah, there are just some different ways that I think that AI is bringing our world closer. Um, it's also helping us understand while where, where are some of the harms that exist mm -hmm. Um, and where we can um, put our efforts to help um, create more success in those areas. And are there some ways that that de developers of this technology that that they can make sure that that AI uh, algorithms are fair and that they don't perpetuate bias or discrimination? I mean, what what can be done? That's a great question, and that's where I work with organizations and leaders to help establish these principles that these developers and data scientists are using to create and train the models. And I'll give you an example of why that's so important. So in my research, I spoke with someone about uh, the work that they do in AI, they're data scientists. And they said, because they don't have proximity to people who might have uh, uh, face challenges systemically or racially or whatever it is, they would not even know to create and design technology that works differently, mm -hmm. right? They just would not know. That's not necessarily their fault. However, if there were some guidelines in place from their organization's perspective, they might consider that. Now, this particular professional, because they are concerned about it, started exploring uh, on their own how what AI harm meant, what AI bias meant, and was able to themselves think about creating broader guidelines that um, included um, bias testing. Uh, fairness testing and so forth. But just on her own, she would not have known to do that. And so um, these are just some of the ways that organizations will have to bring in more uh, professionals like myself, AI ethicists, others, and also create training programs around um, AI harm, AI awareness, uh, and AI bias. And I, I was pleased to learn as I was reading about this, I, I did not, not know this, that there are so many... Um, so many ways that the average person can educate uh, himself or herself in artificial intelligence. There are a lot of free classes, free courses that you have that we can can access so that we can learn more about it. Can you tell us about some of those? <laughs> sure. So um, all you have to do is just get on the Internet and search free AI courses. Uh, if you're on a particular platform, there's a number of, of things that you can leverage there. I learned a lot from YouTube videos. I also learned a lot from um, LinkedIn. 
and as well as other places um, that have free courses. So yes, a lot of organizations are stepping up and creating opportunities for people to learn and even uh, for people who have various physical abilities. So you can listen to courses, Mm -hmm. right? So you can, so there are a number of options. So Google has free training, Microsoft has free training. And, and for what you've seen, there is a lot of like reliable training, good courses out there that that you can take. Absolutely. If people are on LinkedIn, I would suggest that I'm actually flying to LinkedIn in a couple of weeks to do a training myself Mm -hmm. uh, to create um, a training for leaders in responsible AI. So I'm super excited about that. But many of the trainings, you can get really good information in 30 minutes to help start your journey. So tell us more about how you make your way into this field of artificial intelligence. Uh, I've mentioned you grew up in St. Paul. Was there something that happened very early? in in your life during your childhood years that brought you into the world of technology, Elizabeth? Well, I don't know necessarily, but I grew up in a family with a lot of brothers, first (laughs) off. And so I was always playing around with types of fixing things. And so I just kind of grew into this interest of um, technology. And actually, I started working at Best Buy many, many years ago, the headquarters, and I saw these really cool innovations. And I wanted to get into that space. And so, uh, yes, Minnesota is kind of like the birthplace for me to explore and be a part of things. I did several internships in high school at 3M, where mm-hmm. I was working, doing um, work with the CAD CAM machine when that came out. So talk about evolution. <laughs> um, so yeah, Minnesota has been that place for me. And then just really good family structure around advocating um, and making sure that all people are included has has helped develop my philosophy around uh, leadership. And and you come from a, a very impressive family with, with deep ties to St. Paul. Um, your great, great grandfather, I believe, was a uh, the first black firefighter in St. Paul. Is that right? That is correct. <laughs> William Godet in 1885, he became the first black firefighter and he retired in 1926 as a captain. And so he had uh, oversight for two black firehouses teams. And, um, and so that for me frames my views on diversity and inclusion, mm-hmm. honestly. So we've been doing this work for over a hundred years of uh, increased representation. And so, yeah, very, very excited about that. And the St. Paul headquarters, fire headquarters is named after him and his brother, my uncle, uh, Alfred Godet, who uh, died in the line of fire. And there's a, mm-hmm. uh, he's, he is um, at the memorial at, at the Capitol. Um, so mm. in, in honor of him. There. And your mother uh, was very, inter- very invested in youth and helping kids have safe yes. places to play uh, decades ago. She played a key role in getting a playground built in St. Paul. Tell us about that. Absolutely. So she and other uh, leaders in the community did not see an opportunity for us to go out and play and in, in the same as other communities around. And so they worked with the mayor. She was very instrumental. Um, going down to the mirror every day saying our kids need to play. So they built the Oxford playground and there's a picture of me breaking ground with the mirror at the time. I forgot the mirror's name. Um, so yes, again, more work around advocacy and inclusion and just making sure that our narratives are um, that we're just like everyone else. We want to have a good time. We want to learn. We want to play. We want safe spaces. 
And so, um, yes, very, very proud of my family and the history that they have. So leadership is in, is in your blood and you are continuing on uh, this legacy by focusing on artificial intelligence. Uh, let's take another phone call as we talk with an AI expert this hour, talking with Elizabeth M. Adams, the CEO and responsible AI advisor for EMA Advisory Services. Uh, in St. Paul, Sarah's on the phone. Good morning, Sarah. What did you want to ask as we talk about artificial intelligence and what we need to know today? Hi, thank you. I read an article about the effect on babies of um, increased screen time, um, mm. that they're, it was affecting them cognitively. And I think it's probably the same article that um, increased screen time in adult humans has also affected us cognitively so that our um, ability to have an attention span was like several years ago, mm. two minutes, and now it's decreased to 45 seconds. And I'm just curious mm. about the increase in technology in our lives with AI and how that will affect us cognitively and our ability to interact and um, just on our human beingness. That's a great question. Um, and what are you seeing in your research or what have you read or heard about as we look at, um, you know, the effects of AI and, and just more of us having access to it at much younger ages? Yeah, that has not been a part of my research and so I can say for myself, having immersed myself in this, that it's a little different for me because this is like a playground for me. And so I love to have multiple projects that I'm working on at once. Um, and I love to make the connections between those projects. But that's a very, very important study. And I would love to learn more. But in education, as we look at maybe when children as they're in elementary school or high school, as they're reading, and then, you know, we talk about writing, um, what what should we be looking at as we look at the impact on education and how students might be able to access AI in a good way, but also a harmful way? Yeah, so there's a couple different thoughts that I have for that. And so one of Minnesota's own, Marika Pfefferkorn, has done a lot of work around um, algorithms in schools and how those algorithms could be used to determine whether or not uh, someone could be considered a menace. And so putting some things in place to help them along their, their journey and have found that because of biased algorithms and the way that some of that data was captured, that that could actually harm uh, children of color. So we have to be very, very careful about how the data is being used and used with algorithms to determine potential outcomes or educational um, programs for children and youth and students. Does that make sense? I think so. Um, in in terms of like identifying like like a child's like tr like the type of classes they should be take taking or what levels they should be placed in in, in classes. Well, for instance, if you determine that someone is late, let's just say late to school, mm -hmm. and that counts towards them. And so you look at the end of the year and you say, this person has been late four times, but you don't understand that maybe they had to catch the, the bus and maybe they have to wait to catch the bus. Or maybe they're um, not being dropped off until their parents can get them there, whatever the case might be. They're not necessarily late. Their circumstances beyond their control is why they're late. But that data might show up as if they're truant. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so then you have these programs that could say, um, well, these people are late all the time. So we need to have different types of, of educational opportunities for them. So, this gets, so yeah. this gets back to why humans are always going to be um essential in making good decisions, that everything can't be based on a computer's decision. 
Absolutely. And like I said before, with generative AI, you could throw a bunch of data into it and ask it to return some gaps or opportunities or or um, some ways to think about some things. But you have to know that data for yourself mm-hmm. and you have to understand what's the underlying causes for why some of that data has been captured. And so that's a whole nother segment of responsible AI, which is which is considered data governance, mm-hmm. understanding your data. And we have another phone call, this one from St. Cloud. This is Christopher on the line. Christopher, are you there? Yes. Hi, go ahead. Um, I'm kind of looking at this transfer of wealth from creatives to rich individuals to deprive them of, you know, the money from the things that they've created by scraping, which isn't scraping, it's direct theft from the creatives to the pockets of the wealthy individuals to create more money without compensating any of the creatives for what they made, whether it's photographs or written material or anything that the the creative people have done has been scraped or stolen directly, and nobody's been compensated for it at all. So how can AI be ethical when much of the stuff is stolen or basically, you know, we've created a new slave society of people that are creatives that are uncompensated, and then their creative work is used against them so that they can't get more jobs so that rich people can use their old creative material mm. to make new creative material. Christopher at St. Cloud, again, getting to an ethical question, um, looking at uh, who gets credit and, and who's able to um, you know, have job security and, and be compensated for work that they've created. Elizabeth? Yeah, that's a real big, huge challenge. I mean, he's he nailed it on the head, which is there have been a lot of organizations when you decide that you want to um, download a certain app on your phone or you want to place your information or upload it to a, to a particular site that they now have access to that information. And he is talking about the unethical uh, ways that organizations have built their data by scraping um a lot of the the content um, unethically from mm-hmm. from um, from people. So there are some some processes in place to work with policymakers. It's not going to be fixed anytime soon, and that is a particular challenge. So you saw, I don't know if you saw, but the New York Times is actually suing Microsoft and mm-hmm. and um, OpenAI because they believe that all of those journalists, right? Who, really done those uh, really great work and peer reviews and all the research. And now they've taken that information and they put it into this model. And so now that someone else can have access to it. And so, yes, there's a lot of challenges with that. People are getting richer and people who've worked very, very hard, very, very hard. They've invested hundreds of dollars and thousands of dollars in getting an education. Mm -hmm. And now their information, now their, their work, is being sucked up into these models. And so that's a problem. I don't have an answer for that. I've worked with policymakers on that, but it's a large issue. It's on you. Yeah, well, I I have learned so much this hour, uh, again, about the benefits and the concerns about artificial intelligence. And I'm glad that we have people like Elizabeth M. Adams on the scene, uh, researching this, studying this, and uh, offering uh, some guidance to leaders. Our time is up. I want to thank our guest, Minnesota native Elizabeth M. Adams, the CEO and Responsible AI Advisor at EMA Advisory Services. Thank you for your time this morning, Elizabeth. I enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. And thank you for dedicating a whole hour to this very important topic. 
This conversation was produced by Matt Alvarez and made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For more reporting in our North Star Journey series, go to nprnews.org and look for the North Star Journey link. I'll talk to you again tomorrow morning at 9. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.